1: to turn Penelope's world upside down.
0: Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realised there might be something more between them, watch Bridget in Season 3, now playing only on Netflix.
2: I'd never seen that kind of money in my life. And I think it changed us for the better, but not necessarily my kids and my son in particular. Because I felt so guilty because we had so little that when I got the money, I just gave them too much. And like Matthew said, he goes, Mom, it's it's never that we wanted the money. We just wanted the time with you. And so that was a huge lesson for me that money didn't change anything for them. They wanted the love and the time of their mom.
0: Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. Today on the show, we're joined by the enigmatic Erin Brockovich. You'll probably recognize Erin's name from the 2000 award-winning film starring Julia Roberts that documented how Brockovich, then an unemployed single mother, became a legal assistant who almost single-handedly brought down a California energy corporation. That company, PG&E, was accused of polluting a city's water supply and the class action lawsuit brought upon by Brockovich was settled in 1996 for $333 million, the largest settlement of a direct action lawsuit in US history. Outside of the story told in the film, though, Brockovich continues to have quite a presence in the legal sphere. Currently, she's an ambassador for Shine Lawyers right here in Australia. When we sat down with Erin in our Melbourne office, we asked about what it was like having your name attached to one of the biggest Hollywood movies of the decade, what it's like to land suddenly on huge money, and her relationship with the label of feminist icon. Here's Erin. Erin Brockovich. Welcome to Shameless In Conversation. Thank you so much for making the time for
2: us. We know you are on a very busy schedule. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: We start
1: every interview. We mentioned this off mic before and it rattled your brains a little bit, but with it the did. same question and we said, what are you reading, watching or listening to at the moment that you would recommend to other people?
2: Highly, absolutely recommend a documentary. It's done by a Australian mm. and it is an Australian documentary called 2040. I've never heard of it and I feel very guilty. I haven't either. Well, I had neither, But on the airplane coming over, I, I'm like, hmm, let me see what that is. And I want to make sure that I get credit to the, the father and the filmmaker. And it's Damon Gamoo. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Damon, if you're listening. <laughs> I tried. It's G-A-M-E-A-U. It is a very inspiring, uplifting environmental film. The reason he called it 2040 is his daughter at tw- in 2019, I think it's three, but by the time it's 2040, she'd be 21, 22. Mm. And what would her world look like? So he set off to all of these places to see how very distraught communities are actually getting access to a solar panel and how they're using that and then connecting that energy source with a neighbor and how they create these entire grids. The simplest of things that you can do that could change our food sources and how to make the environment a livable, good place for his daughter in 2040. It is uplifting. It is charming. It is inspiring. And it's like in this crazy world of technology, you'd think that we would have all these answers to get all this stuff done, yet we're not. But when you get out there and see what he's showing us and how simply it can be done, it just makes you really go, oh, My gosh, there is hope.
0: I'm really interested to hear you describe it as uplifting. I think that's quite refreshing because often when really important environmental documentaries or films or books come out, they can be a little bit dystopian, which is fair enough. It's quite dire, the situation at the moment. But for it to be uplifting
2: and hopeful is refreshing. It is refreshing. And I completely understand everything you just said. I am the one person every time that goes to a party and somebody will ask me a water question that by the time I'm done talking, they're like... Oh my God,
0: we're all fucked, <laughs>
2: that, right? And please don't invite her to any more parties.
0: <laughs> She's such a ball. Of I'm fun. isolated,
2: <laughs> but you bring up a really, really valid point. And so much negativity is going on right now, especially with the environment. In some ways, it's it feels easier to bury your head in the sand and really? pop up and think that somebody has fixed it or, or done it for us. Which is why I think we're all really waking up because we're realizing that isn't what's mm. happening. But the hope, see, we can't lose hope. Erin,
1: we will get to, in a moment, how you channel a lot of that hope in the work that you're doing, because I imagine you must. But I want to go back a bit and ask what you were like as a kid.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was born and raised in Lawrence, Kansas. I love the outdoors. This is where I learned a lot of my common sense set of skills, which is something that I teach a lot about, especially in my lectures. I think we've disconnected from it or we don't believe it because we're taught not to believe it or we don't trust in ourselves. But that's all I had because I'm a dyslexic. So I learned very early on I didn't like to be boxed in, I didn't like to be labeled, nobody does, and I didn't like to be teased and bullied. And therefore I became a little bit of like a class clown because I didn't always fit in from an educational perspective. It took me a whole process through my life to learn to trust myself, believe myself, and fall back on the very things that I did know as a kid that were instinctual, and that's that common sense set of skills. I had a school teacher that truly altered my life. Her name was Kathy Borseth. And every time she'd ask questions in class, I was like, ooh, 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 I know, I know. I always knew the answers. But when she gave me a test, I failed. So one day she called me out on it in a very polite way, didn't overreact to anything, and she said, so is there something going on? And I said, well, I have something called dyslexia. I don't really know. And she goes, oh, okay. She said, so I like to think outside of the box. She said, so how about we do this? Um, every time I give you a test at the end of the class and everyone's gone, I'm going to give you the same test orally and we'll see how you do. I said, okay. And she said, so this test that you just took that you failed, I'm going to give to you orally right now. Do you think you can pass it? I said, oh, absolutely. A plus. So because she thought outside of the box and saw that I was different, and my mother always taught me just because you're different doesn't mean you're inferior. And the the hope that she gave me by thinking outside of the box showed me that I did know. I don't have to be inferior even though I'm different. All of that, yes, it changed my GPA, but what it did for my self-esteem was amazing. So as a kid, it was great growing up, but that was my little drawback in life because I was perceived as different, I was treated differently, I was bullied, I had a lot of friends, I became that class clown, but it wasn't on my academia when most of my friends did go that way. But everything I learned growing up from my mom about stick it's a very valuable word. I've talked about this I've over here before. I've heard you say that in other interviews. I'm like, I like that phrase. stick definition noun, propensity to follow through in a determined manner, dogged persistence born of obligation and stubbornness. Hello, ladies. That is every <laughs> single one of us. We know what it's like to be stubborn, dogged, and persistent. But the word triggered something for me. So when I felt challenged, I became to dictutiveness. And my dad teaching me about the environment and all of those instincts that I had. And I share it in my talks about the value of, of common sense. I think we've forgotten what that means for me growing up in Kansas. Tornado alley. I think everyone knows what a tornado is. And I could be outside playing. And if the tornado sirens went off, I didn't need to call the Weather Channel to ask if it was an F3 or an F4 coming, because frankly I didn't care. It was a tornado and I needed to get to safety. These are common sense set of skills that I think at some level have been put to sleep in all of us. But if you get back to them, that common sense, that innate instinctual gut reaction in most instances is life saving. It's the same thing if I said to you, your municipal water was tainted with rat poison. Are you going to drink it? Or are you going to call National Institute of Health and go, well, it's three parts per trillion, shouldn't it be two? Because here's the thing. A poison is a poison all day long. And I don't want to drink it in my water at any level. So it was my upbringing as a little girl. That's what I relied on. And I'm here to tell you now at 59 years old and four grandchildren later (laughs) That is a very solid platform for all of us to function from. And that's believing in yourself, what you see, what you know is happening, what you're experiencing, and having that common sense to know when to get out and not wait for somebody else to tell you when to do that.
0: Erin, can you run us through, for those who haven't seen the film about your life, how you came across the lawyer Ed Masry?
2: Well, what had happened was I was a single mom. I'd been in a bad car wreck. And I ended up moving from Reno, Nevada down to the Los Angeles area. And my boyfriend at the time, the biker dude, George, and I always have something to say about that. I let everyone know because they think I married him, which I did not. But had the real biker dude looked anything like the guy in the film, I wouldn't <laughs> mar- <laughs> I'm people gonna... are
0: very invested. I have a question <laughs> later on about George, which people are just very invested, <laughs> myself included, and my mom, who loves the film. Oh,
2: spoiler alert, right? But um, I would have never kicked him out. So that's kind <laughs> that's kind of a joke that we have going on. So, But I digress. Uh, after the car wreck and I moved to L.A., mm-hmm. George knew Ed Masry's partner, Jim Vitato, And so I met Jim, and Jim took my case on which we lost. And he had already introduced me to Ed, and I needed a job. So I went back and told Ed, I need a job, but kind of had to beg for a job. He, you know, wasn't that interested in hiring me. And I, I got my start in the workman's compensation department. I'm a people person. I think going back to my childhood, a lot of that is because I understand what it's like to be shut out or nobody listening to you. And I became a person that listened. And It was one of those moments where Ed got a phone call. He said, call this lady back. She was telling me about the water. Roberta Walker thought it was weird. I asked for permission to go out there. I did. I got some documents. I read them. I was looking at the blood test results, and here it comes that common sense moment where it's like, now I'm a mother, and I think it's odd that all these blood tests, and it was done in a graph chart so I could easily see what was out of range. And any mother would be curious as to, why are my kids' blood counts off? Why is their red cells too high? Why is their white count too low? And I set out to follow up on it, met Roberta. Long story short, I got to the state and started pulling up records and discovered hexavalent chromium, a groundwater contamination, quite poisonous, was being covered up and concealed from everybody.
0: One thing that immediately comes to mind is, as someone with dyslexia, legal documents are so tricky to read for the average person, like someone who struggles with reading comprehension. Wasn't that really difficult?
2: I don't think I'd be able to read those documents and come to a conclusion as to what they meant. Or know what to look for. Well, I'm thrilled you asked, and frankly, most people don't. But dyslexics code different. If you ever look up Who has dyslexia? Some of your greatest minds, like Einstein. We're dyslexic. We code differently. So while I'm not comprehending, I'm scanning and retaining all information. So I store it almost backwards and then it comes forward later. And by way of example, I'll share with you the first document that set me off that I got a hold of was dated 1992. And it stated that the monitoring wells in the area still had five ppm hexavalent chromium. The reason that interested me is because I had already learned that 5 ppm hex chrome was declared hazardous waste. And the report went on to say that 90% of the chromate had already been removed via agricultural and domestic water use. So here's how my brain thinks. Hmm, it's 1992. It's still 5 ppm. 90%'s already been removed. So, what was it in 82? What was it in 72? So, I went and worked backwards. And what made a difference in the case was the causal relationship we made between dose response ratio. That chromium 6 didn't hit the aquifer at 5 ppm, it hit the aquifer at 58 ppm. That kills you. So, dyslexics are intelligent, but they code differently. And that was the document that blew it open for me.
1: What kind of toll and pressure does a case like that put on you that perhaps viewers might not have seen on screen?
2: Well, I think it puts pressure on both me and the law. It takes a special attorney like Ed What people didn't see on the screen was in the beginning, everyone told Ed he couldn't do this case. And I had already spent six, eight months on it. I became vested in the people. And there's a scene in the film that really resonates with me. And I I could talk about it and I probably start bawling a little because that was time and work away from my kids. I missed out on a lot. And so when Ed said we can't do this case, I was very offended, not only for them, but for myself. And I said, you know, this surprises me about you, Ed, as we sit in your law library, because I want to ask you how all these laws came to be that we work by. Because somebody took a risk. Somebody had the courage. Somebody had the balls (laughs) to stand up and fight for something. I guess that's not who you're going to be. Now, when Ed was mad at me, his ears literally would shift back a notch. <laughs> and his ears shifted back a notch. And I'm like, ooh, maybe he You're doing your job me. well, yeah. And, but he came back in. And the problem, everyone said, was a statute of limitations. And he, he did his law duty. And he pled within one year last past, which was the truth, the people just learned of the hexavalent chromium. That got us through the statute. So it's stressful on the law side, and it's stressful financially on the law side. And for me, what was stressful was I was very vested in these people. I'd given them my word. I didn't want to break that word. And I was putting all that time and effort because it was very visceral for me. Um, I feel like I'll break out into the Beatles song, I am you, you are me, mm-hmm. we are all together. And I felt that way with them. And I was working for my children and all that time lost. So it's hard on both. First of all, it's hard on the community and it's hard on the law side and it's hard on my side. But the, the message is through all of it, we stuck together and we believed in our cause to the end. And I think that made a big difference because pg wanted to conquer and divide and they stayed together.
0: You were a beauty queen, of course. Did you feel like that label and people knowing that meant that you were kind of, I don't know, maybe gaslit into people putting this thing on you that you couldn't possibly know enough about the situation that you were looking at and that you couldn't possibly have an expert opinion or do enough research? or bring anything of value because you did have the background you had?
2: Absolutely. And you can see that now. And we would have never known when I was young with dyslexia, you know, in the 70s, that somebody was gaslighting you. But that's precisely what goes on. I think we've learned so much more now. But I've learned that that, that's a projection. And any time now somebody, the second a gaslight happens, I'm like, what are you hiding? what are you throwing over here? Because see, I'm not going to take your shit in my yard and I'm going to throw it right back at you. And there's no other way to say it, but we do. And I had to pay close attention to that. As I said earlier, I was constantly reminded you're not this, you're not that. Therefore you can't do this and you shouldn't do that. And it, I said, you know, I don't have to be any of that to be a human. Listen, I'm looking at two-headed frogs in green water, and you're not going to convince me that what I see isn't real. And that goes on a lot, and that's what makes me indignant. Do not try to convince me. What I know that I see isn't happening and it drives me crazy. But yet people can convince us that. I mean, how many times have you had a fight in a relationship? Maybe a lot of your listeners will relate to this, but (laughs) your boyfriend says you're crazy and you walk away going, am I crazy? And then you're like, wait a minute. I am not crazy. That is not just what happened, but it's easy that it does happen. And so it's very frustrating. And when you are confident in who you are and you believe in who you are, whether you have a degree or not... No matter whether you're rich or poor, the color of your skin, you know women are good at this. You know it's in your gut. Don't move away from that and don't let somebody knock you off your game.
0: The aspect I find really interesting about you, though, is I think lots of women know deep down, but they don't know how to vocalize it or do something about it. So they feel like they're being gaslit, but they don't have the internal belief to do anything. Whereas with you, and I think this is the reason why a movie was made about you, you have that in spades where you back yourself. And so many women struggle to back themselves, don't they?
2: They absolutely do. And that's such a valid point. I had Ed who took my back. And what I did was I became a little strategic. And I've learned, you know, when we're gaslit, we don't like that. So I don't want to be the one pushing back another way. So I throttled back a little. And I was like, hmm, seeing is believing. What can I present that might make somebody go, uh, wait a minute, something going on out there. I went door to door. I talked to people. And you know, it's amazing. Oftentimes we don't talk to our neighbors or we don't talk to another woman about an issue because we feel ashamed. But when we do, we realize that it could be happening to others or it is happening to someone. And that gives you a little bit of empowerment or that moment to go, whew, I'm not crazy, right? Because everyone wants to think you are. And then I started out on the document search, and I started creating what I call a hot doc book and putting facts and information together. And again, as a dyslexic, this would be how I code, and I'm very strategic about it, so that somebody else could see, oh, wait a minute, this is actually happening So that helps you give a voice. So don't be afraid to make that first moment with somebody and let them know what's happening. Because that conversation in of itself, you could go, oh my gosh, I re- I've never thought of that. Oh my gosh, that made me feel better. Or somebody else may call in and say, that's happened to me too. And I've learned for every 10 people that report 100, don't. you're not alone. Once you realize that, your voice can get a little stronger.
0: Coming up after the break, how the movie Erin Brockovich became the blockbuster film starring Julia Roberts. But first, a word from today's sponsor.
1: When the case is over, you're handed a paycheck for, what, $2.5 million, and this is in the 90s. Like, how does that change your life, a cash injection like that, for better or for worse? Is that a strange thing to go from, you know, a very, I mean, the the movie painted it as a very rags to riches kind of tale? Well,
2: it was. I'd never seen that kind of money in my life. And... (laughs) I always laugh with Ed. I had never seen that kind of money before. So nobody really kind of told me about the IRS <laughs> taxes. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. I got to give them how much? Ah. Uh, so that started off a whole new tirade for me. Most people don't ever do that. There's been a few law firms in my life that have. And it's the generosity that astounds me. Uh, it did change my life. It was, you know, the first time my kids and I ever had a home. And I learned a lot about taxes, like I said. I think it changed us for the better, but not necessarily my kids. Oh my gosh, I've had so many conversations with my kids who are now adults. You know, my son's 37, my daughter's 35, my youngest is 28. And my son in particular, because I felt so guilty because we had so little that when I got the money, I just gave him too much. And like Matthew said, he goes, Mom, it's, it's never that we wanted the money. We just wanted the time with you. And so that was a huge lesson for me that Money didn't change anything for them. They wanted the love and the time of their mom. And that my guilt um, and giving them so much so soon in a way hurt them and uh, enabled them in some ways, which I could also see hurt them. And so it was a big lesson. Money certainly doesn't make you happy. It can in some ways make life easier and in some ways make life more complicated. And all my kids will tell you, they kind of were happier when it was simpler.
0: You just said money doesn't make life easier and lots of people could also say the same. It can make it
2: easier. Money doesn't make you happy. Yeah.
0: It doesn't always make you happier. The same could be said for fame. What was it like when you were approached and told that your life was going to be made into a movie and not just that, a movie where you were going to be played by Julia Roberts?
2: Well, what happened and how the film came about was I had really been in a car wreck. And my sister is a retired ballerina um, turned acupuncturist in craniology. She had a friend in Chicago that moved to California. My sister said, I really think you should get some cranial work after that car accident. So Pam DeMond is her name would do cranial work on me. And I don't know if you've ever had cranial work, but it's like an injection of Valium. You're just like loosey-goosey <laughs> and happy and you feel really good because all your cranial muscles get like really tight. And so every time I was on her table working, she was working on me. She'd ask me questions, you know, what are the dead frogs in the back? And were you running around in your stilettos and skirt in the dirt? What are you doing? So I was telling her what was happening. What I didn't know was that her friend, Carla Schomburg, was married to Michael Schomburg, who was Danny DeVito's partner in Jersey films. So she was sharing all this stuff with Carla and Carla was sharing it with the film people and they're like oh my god what a fun idea for a movie <laughs> we, had, we had to meet this girl. So Carla's like did not believe Pam so I met Carla and I showed up. Now I'm tall anyway so in heels I'm one. I love the blonde hair and I can back comb it better than anybody. I loved my short BB skirts. I don't know if you remember a company called BB that was really popular in America, but I showed up at her house and Carla is this gloriously almost French looking woman with the natural gray hair and thin and yoga and swimming <laughs> and a little California tan. And here I am, this Amazon monster at her door, and she, like, looks around. She goes, am I on candid camera? Is this for real? And I was like, what? I mean, yeah. So that's what started the whole film was Pam DeMond and introducing me to Danny DeVito. So once we signed the rights away, Ed and I used to have conversations. and Ed and I were great teasers, and he'd always go, you know, kid, if they really make this film, who do you think should play you? I'm like, I don't know, Ed. Who do you even? That's like a question that people ask all the time as a joke. (laughs) You know I totally picked
0: Margot Robbie, by the way. Oh, so would I. So we have to fight over her.
2: <laughs> Isn't it funny to think about that, though? I will tell you something funny I have it on my phone right now because I had a memory pop up on Facebook. You know, the little games you play, like yeah, who will play you and stuff? I did it. It came up, Julia Roberts. <laughs> I died laughing. It's on my phone right now. <laughs> did she have been the one that you picked, or was no, she the one you picked in that conversation? No. So I told her, um, somebody fun. I'm actually <laughs> fun. People don't know that about me because every time we have conversations that are serious, I'm very serious, but I'm also really fun and funny. And so I said, I don't know, maybe somebody fun like Goldie Hawn. I, I related that. to that personality. So Ed's response was, no, I was thinking more along the lines of Roseanne Barr. Ha, 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 Ed. Oh, and that was our joke. And I
1: Thank I, God. Was, I know. We
2: were joking that way because, you know, I can have a potty mouth. So that's, you know, it's our... It was a joke. It was very funny because Ed and I joked a lot. But he went on to say, I don't care who plays the role as long as it's not Julia Roberts. I go, oh, first of all, it's never going to be Julia Roberts. So it would even entertain that idea. I mean, come on. If I'd had this conversation in high school, like, no, yeah, somebody's going to make a film about the work that I do. And it's going to start Julia Roberts. You would have called me crazy. yeah, you <laughs> And I would have thought I then. was crazy. <laughs> right. Oh, you're right. I am crazy because yeah. that will never happen. I'm like, it's never going to happen. Not long after that, Steven Soderbergh called me and he said, we've cast the role. And I was like, oh. I go, who is it? He goes, it's Julie Roberts. I was like, yes. I, you know, I couldn't wait to call Ed and tell him. And then he told me it was Albert Finney for Ed's role. But when I did call Ed, I was like, neener, neener, neener. And he goes, no, it's Julie Roberts. And I said, it is. And he goes, I can't believe it. He goes, did they cast Tom Cruise for me? And I'm like, yeah, no. That would be Albert Finney's. like, no! <laughs> they did a great job. I wanted to ask you, we were watching some interviews uh, with you this
1: morning before you came in. And one that could be dangerous. <laughs> it's, it's, it must be weird for you <laughs> to hear that. Um, and one of them was on, I think, Oprah's TV channel. And the question was about you meeting Julia Roberts. And what we were really surprised about was the fact you didn't meet her before the film. You met her in filming. Is that right? Mm-hmm. How does that feel when you know this movie is being made about you, but the person playing you has no insight into who you are?
2: Well, I didn't know a lot how to feel about that. But I learned later. Uh, That's Steven Soderbergh's call. And he didn't want her to just mimic me. He said, she needs to understand you. So I spent a year with a writer shadowing me, Susanna Grant. Oh, she's amazing. And she would listen to tapes and read it. But he said, if you can't feel it, you you don't give your best performance. Now, that's coming from him. Mm -hmm. That's not anything I said. But I get what he was saying. He needed her to to feel it. Mm -hmm. And... When you follow somebody around, you just kind of mimic them. He wanted her to just own it. So that is why. But it was weird because I really didn't meet her except... On the set, where I went, and she was in the restaurant, and the waitress comes up. The waitress was me. loved that, by the way, the switching of the names. I know, which is weird. The whole Mm. thing was weird. And the person sitting behind Julia, the gray-haired man, was Ed. (laughs) So here I am. I felt like I was in a vortex. And I'm looking at Julia Roth. First of all, I'm nervous. I'm not an actress. And I don't like my picture taken. I don't like a camera. I'm like, oh, my God. You know? (laughs) Please, could you back that thing up? But it's Julia Roberts, and she's me, and I'm you, but yet those are my kids. So I flubbed up my line because she was given the baby chicken noodle soup, and I'm like, well, I wouldn't – you can't give Elizabeth the chicken noodle soup. She could choke on a noodle. I mean, gag on it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they're like, cut, Aaron. Just – But it was weird. It was just weird. It still is weird. When I went to the movie premiere, Steven Soderbergh intercepted me. And you could clearly see it was a mass crowd. There was lights everywhere, commotion, limos. I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. And we're walking outside of the entrance on on a red carpet coming in. And just as we took a right, Steven was asking me, you know, how do you feel about all this? And I said, I really don't like my." My picture taken and he said you're gonna have to get over it and just as I stepped out he goes now nah, and he pushed me out it was just like all I could do was slap a smile on and walk huh? I was terrified all the commotion all the reaction all the response Once I got inside, everybody from Jersey Films was there. And they said, if you don't stop shaking, we're going to have to take you home. So I was so overwhelmed. My knees were literally knocking together. And they finally talked to me and got me to to calm down. I've done the best I can with the attention. It's very overwhelming. It can be very uncomfortable. You're going to have to have a strong skin because a lot of people like to take shots at you. And they'll take personal shots. They'll take mean shots. You're not that pretty. You're that's too big, you're not that skinny, your teeth aren't possibly wide enough. I mean, I don't know that I was prepared for all of that. This is what, you know, my dad sent me a poster And it's a pedestal. And at the top of the pedestal is a bullseye. And on the side is a ladder. And right at the top is a man at the top of the bullseye looking down. And the caption says, congratulations, you made it to the top. Now stand here and let everyone take their shot at knocking Mm. you off. And that's kind of really what happens for so many people. And so it's still overwhelming. I feel I didn't do this alone. And I didn't do this because it's some miraculous, freakish, scientific, Einstein brain. It came from common sense. It came from caring about people. It came from working with people, us believing in each other, supporting each other, the law taking our back. It was a collective labor of love that made it happen. And I've spent 20 years wanting to make sure everybody heard that message because it it wasn't about me. It was about all of
1: us. Did you struggle then with the fact that the movie was literally your name?
2: Well, that I didn't see coming. I wish somebody had told me about that. I was fine with everything until the night of the rap party and everyone kept saying, what are they going to call the film? And I'm like, I don't know. It's Aaron, Aaron Brockovich. They're gonna, it's a stupid name for a movie. Go ask Steven Soderbergh. So I did and I was a little hesitant and I'm like, so like if you come up with a name and he's like, yeah, Aaron Brockovich. That was the oh shit moment for me because I'm like, well, I'm not going to get away from this. <laughs> you can't possibly. I can't get away from this. And to make matters worse in the film, that moment where Julia gets a phone call, is this The Aaron Pat T. Brockovich. I'm like, oh... Pat T's my middle name. I'm like, who knew? Everybody at home now is going to know it's me. I'm like, what if it's a flop? And I asked Stephen. He said, you know, I never know what a film is going to turn out to be until it happens because I don't know where the people are going to be at the time. What will or won't resonate with them. So um, I think we can all rest assured this resonated very well. <laughs> well, because it's all of, I mean, we all get it, right? Yeah. We all want the same thing, good health or family. And we all could be subjected as I think we're now seeing. Hmm to destructions of the environment and what it does to we as people.
0: I kind of grew up watching the film because my mom loved it. My sisters loved it. And I grew up and I've watched it so many times across the years now. And I think the one thread that has always stuck with me is you emerged from it as a feminist icon and as a icon
2: for women. Do you feel that? You know, somebody asked me that 20 years ago, and I don't know that I would have to see here. Here we talk about I never like want to label something. But if I'm seen as that, yeah, absolutely. I would say I'm a feminist. And I know that that can be daunting sometimes to the male gender, but it shouldn't be. Uh, women are just innately strong. And again, I think labeling something as a feminist, as you've seen, can have a negative connotation. It's kind of like whistleblower. But no, I think I'll own it. I, I own just saw you sit up straight. <laughs> That's right.
1: I wanted to ask you a lot about the work that you're doing now, because after the movie, I imagine, did it feel like it distracted you from the work that you wanted to get back to do, which is essentially defending vulnerable people?
2: No, I continue to do that today and never distracted me from that. I think. What I've learned is I absolutely had no idea when I went to put my finger in the dike, if you will, in Hinkley, that 10 million other floods would open up. There has been no improvement in our environment. There's been the ongoing continual cover-ups, and it's not just in America. It's a global issue, and that has really surprised me, and I stay very true to that. I've worked on the Esure procedure with women, vaginal mesh, medical devices. I'm heavily invested right now in all the awful fires in California and what it's doing to communities from PFOS issues to TCE issues to more hexavalent chromium issues. And where it's really taken me is I'm fascinated with the public health and welfare sector. And that if we don't start addressing these issues, the health crisis that I think the whole planet could encounter if we don't get busy cleaning this mess up now. I didn't envision or even have any understanding at the time that I was doing Hinckley, that 20 years into the future, I'd be doing thousands mm. of Hinckleys.
0: Is there something since Hinckley that has stood out for you as being something that you'll probably always carry on or the most important cause that you've lent your voice and platform to?
2: Well, all the causes are significant. One, environmental. Two is medical devices. There's several several communities uh, I can run with you very quickly that do stick out with me, and the change was the women. And them coming together and speaking up. Hannibal, Missouri, home of Mark Twain. I'm sure you're all familiar with Flint, Michigan, and the lead crisis. They came to us a year before it became anything that anybody in America or the world knew it to be from a group of mothers women and a woman doctor. And we went there and did a whole protocol for the city and they basically told us to buzz off, literally. And I'm being nice because I could drop a lot of f-bombs behind that because that's what they said to us. And after it kind of broke the news, we quickly learned there was 210 other Flint's in America and some worse than Flint, one being Hannibal, Missouri. So a group of mothers too came to us. We went out there and we began to work with them on educating them and informing them about lead and how they had lead in their water, which was from the use of adding ammonia to chlorine that creates a corrosive and angry water. And if you have lead pipes, which their distribution system was, it causes those to corrode and the lead leaches into the distribution system, which is not regulated and delivered to your tap. So they got very organized, and I'm telling you, they were letting the entire town know what was going on. They had flyers out, and they had signs up in the yard, and no more ammonia, and all of that. They wanted to do more, and we said, run for office. And they go, oh, we couldn't possibly win, and we're like, yeah, you can. You know more than the city council does now. Two of the ladies ran, and they won, and they put a referendum out to the community. who was now educated, yes or no, to ammonia, unanimously. No, they changed the law and they have lead free water. That's incredible. That's the power. And when I talk about women, it doesn't mean men can't do it because they certainly can. But you'll see every time that mother, when that line is crossed to her child's health or to their own, they rise. The Esure procedure, which was a medical device gone bad, women in Australia had it. It's basically a form of permanent birth control. It was manufactured by Bayer. What a nasty, horrible product, ruining women's lives. They were getting pregnant on it. The device would move. The amniotic sacs were being pierced. You know, 28-week-old fetuses were being born dead. It was perforating women's organs. It was a nightmare. And some women came to me seven, eight years ago. I'd have to go in and Google exactly when that happened. But they wanted to do something about this. And I said, from a legal recourse, you can't. Because in America, we have what's called preemption, which means that the FDA is giving you pre-market approval if you come in with your studies and it gets out on the market and something goes wrong. Unless you can prove fraud, you're out, even if it harms 50,000 women. So these women were like, oh, hell no, I'm not going to put up with that. They started getting organized really fast. They became a Facebook group of 50,000 women. women. And they made it their job to fundraise each other and themselves. They got to Washington, D.C., and they rotated in and out all year, every year. Every congressman and woman and senator, FDA, they protested. They went to meetings. They found facts. They found information long story short we were able to show fraud lawsuits have been filed but the thing that is most significant and what they wanted is exactly what they got you're talking about 50,000 women now the best thing you can do when you are around 50,000 organized women is get out of their way they know what they're doing they push so hard bear pulled the product from the world market That was a sense of justice for these women and that voice being heard. And their message was they weren't going to stand for this happening to 50,000 more women. Mm. So it's these stories that give us hope, that are very inspirational, that show us the power of our voice and collectively how we can truly change the dial.
1: I did want to come back to that concept of hope that we initially touched on at the very start of the interview, because I think what I find most interesting about the work that you do, and I think would be really inescapable, is feeling defeated by these huge conglomerates and companies and institutions that actively hurt the people around them. Do you ever feel defeated by that? Or do you just carry the hope of the successful cases behind you to sort of pull you through and keep you working?
2: Yes, I could feel that way. But I I don't feel that way because especially now and technology has given us, I think that we finally see them. Everyone finally sees them. The information that's been hidden and concealed that's now coming to light while they tried to hide and deceive or gaslight. In the end, they weren't successful. So I stay focused on that because it would be daunting as we talked about looking at all of us knowing now over the past 20, 30 years, that in some way we've been poisoned or harmed or looking back and now realizing, is that why I lost my loved one? And as daunting as that is, I want to stay focused on the hopeful front. That's why I loved 2040. I love the conversation we're having so we don't go down that rabbit hole, if you will, Mm -hmm. and that we can see we the people have always had the power and the ability to change things and that we the people are finally starting to believe in ourselves again and that's that's where i'm going to choose to stay because if i do look back on all of what they've gotten away with it's tragic but we need to move forward erin what's next for you oh my gosh Well, let's see. I have four grandchildren. I'm thinking I could have a fifth. (laughs) My daughter's like, I want to have all these grandbabies for you. I'm like, oh no, do them for me. They're (laughs) yours. (laughs) I love them, but you know, force (laughs) plenty. I always send them home with plenty of sugar. No, she's very strict about that in their diet. (laughs) Well, I'm fifty nine. And I have been yet through another divorce. Um, This one I'm glad I have behind me because I was ordered to pay alimony. That was quite the shift and I did it and I'm done. So I feel a little like I can take a breath now for a moment. Not sure if I want to date or (laughs) or even get married again. I'm very busy with my family. I have great friends. I'm truly enjoying my work I'm excited for next year. I'm looking at having my own podcast.
0: If you need any advice. Well, thank you. <laughs> and, and
2: that thought has already come through my head, which I, I love. And, you know, something we don't do is very apparent to me you are listening. And a lot of times we aren't listening. And as that thought came through my mind, I'm like, "Go oh, and I have this podcast. They're so quite attentive because, you know, once in a while my mind can go over there. <laughs> but the importance of listening. So I am looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to the release of my book, Fall 2020. Superman's not coming tag, you're it. <laughs> we will make sure that is in the show notes and everywhere so everyone knows. And then I am I'm working on a TV show and ABC has bought it. We're finishing the pilot. With all good luck we would be to air in the fall 2020 but it is basically Thelma and Louise meets Law and Order. Oh my you're god. you kidding. No. And uh, I'm excited. I'm executive producer but it would be a way to bring a lot of these stories, everything that we're talking about to light mm. in an entertaining way and um, the character. She's a little bit inspired by me. She's quite the one to wrangle with, but I think most women really are, especially when we put our minds to something. But it should be some fun um, with stories, as you said, and I'm still stuck on that, how it is we lose the understanding of environmentalism and how we go th- forward because it's so daunting we don't want to face it. But there are ways through podcasts and through good series or documentaries that we can tell that story. give hope. And I'm hopeful that this type of series will do just that. It'll show you the the badass side, the good side, the little bit of a rogue side. Mm -hmm. But in the end, morally, it's just always wanting to do the right thing Mm. by people and the environment and justice. So hopefully we'll get that kicked off.
1: And the last question we always ask is what does success look like to you with all of this in mind? Like how do you define success in your own life? Do you ever take stock and take time to think about it?
2: Oh, I do. Too much. Ooh, I'm big on self-accountability. And of all the good things and all the bad things in my life, I've sat back and looked at what did I truly contribute to that. I don't have a big ego. I don't like to get over my skis. I don't want my ego to get over my skis. I don't know that any of us ever really accomplish anything just alone. We can stand out because, you know, we can scream. My mom used to always say, "Aaron's a squeaky wheel that gets the oil because she'll just keep going and going and going and going. But on principle, on public health and welfare, right and wrong, I just, I can't help myself. It's just kind of who I am. But I've learned that success isn't measured by money. I think success is measured by who you perceive yourself to be as a person and if you're happiness. And, you know, happy can be a hard pursuit. And it comes in many ways other than success and fame and this idea that we think we need to achieve to be happy. I find my greatest happiness listening to my grandkids laugh and taking a walk on the beach and smelling the ocean and feeling the sun and a great breeze on your face. My spirit feels enlightened and happy. I think that's true success.
0: Erin, you have been such a delight. Thank you so much for taking the time I've out. have enjoyed to chat it. With us. <laughs> it's
2: been so great to here being with. but Honestly, what great listeners. <laughs> for all your listeners, I'm I mean, sitting here. I'm glad we're good it's at something. fabulous. <laughs> but
1: thank you so much. We so appreciate your time and your stories. And um, we think the listeners well, are really going to love this one.
2: Well, thank you. And I really love, I enjoyed being here very, very much. And thank you for a great job and letting me have a voice and so many others. Thank, thank you. you so much.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Erin Brockovich. If you loved this chat with Erin, you can find out more from her at the real TheRealErinBrockovich on Instagram. Every word in that handle has an underscore between it. If you loved this chat, consider also having a listen to our interview with M. Rusciano. They are exuberant personalities, both M. and Erin, and I think if you enjoyed this, you'll definitely love our chat with M. Rusciano as well. As for us, we are on Instagram at Shameless Podcast, If you follow us on there, you will see that we are very busy planning our live shows next week presented by ANZ, who is committed to helping Australians get on top of their money and our friends at The Body Shop, the original nature-inspired cruelty-free beauty brand fighting for a fairer and more beautiful world since 1976. We will be back in your ears on Monday. Until then, do follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We will be there, of course, as always. Bye, guys.